You may remember me giving Nick a hard time about not going forward in time fast enough. This will be about less than two years. Mm-hmm. Something about covering thousands of years in one episode and me <laughs> taking my time with three episodes a decade. Okay. Yeah, I've got ego on my face, but that's okay. I'll, I'll wash it off later. <laughs> All good. Hello and welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Comrade Levi, and we're back again to do the work on our Palestine, Zionism, and Empire series. So last time we left off with the buildup toward a pivotal year, 1967. Today we're going to talk about the outbreak and aftermath of that war and what it meant for Israel and the Pan-Arabists and Palestinians in its wake. So Levi, with that, I'll turn it right over to you. This episode covers a turbulent time period of just two years between April 1967 and March 1968, when the Third Arab-Israeli War threw all perceptions of the state of Israel into flux. So before the war, Israeli politicians and the public conceived the invasion of a much larger, well-equipped pan-Arab military as the end of the Zionist experiment. Egyptian president and figurehead of pan-Arabism, Gamal Abdel Nasser, held reservations about the swift escalation of tensions, but similarly believed his military might give birth to the pan-Arab state in Israel's place. The Fatah and Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which began to converge on their belief in a Palestine first over pan-Arab approach, set aside their qualms and joined the Arab armies in their preparation for war. After a decisive preemptive strike, incredible intelligence, a well-executed plan, and a cascade of poor coordination and intelligence for the Arab armies, Israel emerged from the war the overwhelming victors a week after the first shots rang out. All three parties, the Arab states, the Palestinians, and the state of Israel, reimagined their place in the world in relation to the occupied territories seized in 1967. The Arab armies slunk home, shattered, but their ideology of pan-Arabism dealt a debilitating gut punch. The Palestine First guerrilla movement took cold comfort, knowing their assessment of the lightning war plan to eradicate Israel from without represented folly. Both movements set to work, staking out their future in greater harmony at points and intention on others. The sovereign Arab nations struggled to balance a commitment to their principles of Palestinian liberation with the realities of defeat against an emboldened Zionist state and movement. In Israel, the era of Israel is real emerged. English-speaking Jews and Goy alike in America and Great Britain began to imagine Israel as a place worth visiting, living in, and investing in. The same Israeli actors who begged for moderation were procuring their cyanide pills in case of a successful invasion, overnight swelled with hubris. The population began openly debating the state's rights to expand into the conquered territories of the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula, and the West Bank without a care in the world for Arab pleas of moderation. 
At this moment, the ball landed squarely in Israel's court. It may seem crass, but they won the war and they got to dictate the peace. Their hubris informed their choice of belligerence rather than reconciliation. Similar to previous episodes, I will touch on some alternative currents which understood the bloody road this choice led down. But in the end, the events of these two years laid the seeds for the bitter harvest of the Fourth Arab-Israeli War and the transformation of Israel from a struggling, quote-unquote, egalitarian ethnostate into America's neoliberal client. As we touched on at the end of the last episode, and I know you're going to touch on it again a bit later, but just as we're kind of summarizing our episode here in the intro, this victory, this war, resuscitated at this time what would have been a kind of dormant, if still present, far-right secular revisionist movement. And that was a faction that would also soon be augmented by the still small but soon to be very influential far-right settler fundamentalists envisioning the establishment of a greater Israel. So as you said, this emboldened them to speak about rights to expand, and then you can kind of have this energy glom onto this vision for this state as constructed by biblical boundaries, which these fundamentalists kind of glom onto. Just to kind of set the stage for what this is going to unleash in Israel at the end of it all, because this concept of greater Israel, we're seeing it resurface today. And I think a lot of people are becoming familiar with this idea for the first time. And I think you're right that the influence of these religious Zionists have really been relatively small. I mean, they have control of the court system and the education system at this point, but they're still by and large disinterested in foreign affairs or in the Palestinian territories as they existed. But now that they've come under occupation, these forces really will start to make their voices heard. But at this moment, as I'm going to argue in this episode, although we'll be returning to it, the labor Zionist state still had overwhelming legitimacy and control over the situation. It's just that you can see them starting to lose that control. And just a quick point on the control of the education system in the courts. That is something that I think we touched on in our discussion around the formation of the state, just in terms of the contradictions that were developing as these different ideologies, these different peoples, these different ethnic groups were being brought in by hook or by crook into the state, that obviously there were conflicting visions for how the state was going to run. And I think we have to recognize, because we're seeing a similar movement in the U.S. today, and I'm sure we've seen it time and time again, but people recognize the importance of controlling the education system, right? So you can see, you know, even at this time, if we say that this movement is small in influence, but gaining control of legal systems and education systems, I mean, can bear some pretty wicked fruit down the line. Yes. And they, had, they took the long view on this. It's the fruit that we're all now witnessing and have been witnessing at least since 1967. This is where a lot of this really, the convergence begins in terms of creating what we now imagine as the state of Israel. Not to state that anything that we've been doing beforehand isn't bearing heavily, but this is really where we know the names of these people well. Beginning in April 1967, the IDF began a practice of flying jets over the Syrian capital of Damascus. The planes flew as low to the ground as possible, timed entry to mock speed to initiate a sonic boom, or eliminated loud booms from attached speakers. 
This act shattered windows and forced the government of Syria to execute constant preparedness drills. The psychological warfare exposed a technologically ill-equipped Syrian government and instilled fear in the civilian population. One such exercise erupted in a dogfight, but the Israeli military made short work of the Syrian pilots. Though aggressive in their air maneuvers, the state of Israel really did fear a massive land invasion from the combined forces of Egypt and Syria, which might result in a protracted war or even the defeat of the Zionist project. Prime Minister Levi Eshkul and his chief of staff of the IDF, Itzkok Rabin, resisted demands from IDF brass to call up reserves and mobilize a full-scale wartime civic plan because this could possibly stall the already precarious economy. This was described in the previous episode. The Soviet Union in mid-May reported to Egypt and Syria that a massive military buildup was being executed at the Israeli-Syrian border. Invasion was imminent. Egypt's representative to the UN implored the body to move the UNEF peacekeepers placed on the Egyptian-Israeli border after the Second Arab-Israeli War into Syrian territory. Eshkol made public statements, accusing the Soviets of producing false intel that the IDF had no major positions on the Syrian border, which, in hindsight, do appear to have been true. Whether this was bad Soviet intel or intentional ratcheting up on the part of the Soviets is a debate we don't really need to get into. I agree we don't need to get into that debate, but I do want to highlight some of the actions that were taking place on the Israeli-Syrian border at this time. So while they may not have had major positions on the front, tensions in the region were absolutely exacerbated by settler aggression. As Moshe Dayan himself admitted in 1976 to reporter Rami Tal, which the New York Times brought back to light in 1997. So according to the commander, the farmers of the kibbutz in the region could barely, quote, contain their greed for the rich soil of the Golan Heights, and their aspirations were, of course, backed up by the guns of the IDF, a familiar mechanism that we see today. And I just want to read this quote from Diane. We would send a tractor to plow some area where it wasn't possible to do anything in the demilitarized area and knew in advance that the Syrians would start to shoot. If they didn't shoot, we would tell the tractor to advance further. Until in the end, the Syrians would get annoyed and shoot. And then we would use artillery, and later the Air Force also, and that's how it was. The Syrians on the fourth day of the war, June 9th, 1967, were not a threat to us. So it's just like this settler aggression, this settler instigation to kind of promote a response. You're talking about somebody shooting back, right? And then they respond with mortars, artillery, and the Air Force. Just to show that here's a tactic, a, a long-honed tactic. And we can see this with settlers antagonizing Palestinians in the West Bank today. It's the same shit. Yes, it's just been ramped up since this period. Absolutely. So that's an important distinction to make. As I stated, even with the aerial assaults, this is an active war zone for all intents and purposes. The Soviet intel, though, was stating that there was actual armored divisions lining up at the border, ready to invade. That appears to have been manufactured either intentionally or unintentionally. So that's what the Egyptian government was bringing to the UN in order to get Israel chastised by the UN. It's just that the UN's response was to believe the intel and to assume that an invasion was imminent and to get all of their peacekeepers out of there. This was not necessarily what Egypt wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. So these things are ratcheting up at an alarming rate. 
for both Egypt and the UN and for the government of Israel in spite of what settlers may be trying to accomplish. The UN responded to Egypt's request by removing all peacekeepers on the border in Gaza and even further ended the patrols maintaining the Gulf of Aqaba as international waters. Emboldened, Egypt moved a large contingent of tanks and troops into the Sinai Peninsula while Nasser ramped up the antagonistic rhetoric. With UN patrols gone, Nasser announced, as he did during the Suez Crisis, that the Gulf of Aqaba belonged to the Arab world. In effect, this shut down the major Israeli port of Eilat, threatening the stability of the Israeli economy even further. The Egyptian government and Nasser, as the voice of the parent Arab movement, began spiraling fast towards war. The bad Soviet intel, the perception of a weak Israeli economy, the belief that the Israelis grew soft during the decade of peace, Eshkol's public persona as a weak bureaucrat, and Nasser's public persona as the defender of Arab rights, all motivated aggressive Egyptian positioning. In Israel, the military brass threatened to stage a coup d'etat after the closure of Eilat. Eshkol and Rabin saved their skin by mobilizing the reserves, supplemented with aggressive diplomatic outreach to their Western allies. France, Israel's arms provider, hesitated to make an agreement because of a recent trade deal with Egypt, but promised to join the war against whichever side shot the first shot. Great Britain, Israel's former protector, hesitated to commit troops, but arranged to have a British tanker traverse the Gulf of Aqaba to reopen the waterway as an international route. The Brits promised a ship in six months, but since the IDF threatened to depose Eshkol just days prior, the Prime Minister assumed he wouldn't be Prime Minister long, so rejected the plan. The United States, which promised greater aid under the Eisenhower Doctrine, remained aloof. Public sentiment in the States began to turn on Vietnam, and President Lyndon B. Johnson feared aiding another quagmire might be his political end. To top it off, Eshkol, though fluent in at least six languages, struggled to speak modern Hebrew. He botched pronunciations and lost his place during a primetime address to the nation. The speech remains a piece of popular political culture in Israel to this day. To stem nose-diving public confidence, Eshkol removed himself as defense minister and appointed second Arab-Israeli war hero Moshe Dayan on the 1st of June. Israel announced to the world on June 5th that joint Egyptian-Syrian forces crossed the northern border, but in reality, Israel set off the war themselves with their own so-called preemptive, massive aerial bombardment. And that's just, I think, such an important caveat that you add there. So they make this announcement. They announce to the world that this is what happens and then act, right? And then we all find out what happens later what the truth is later, but at that point, it doesn't matter. And I'm making a very general point here, obviously. I'm being very on the nose about it. This is what they do. This is what not just Israel does, but this is what imperial settler colonial powers do. But even for just this specific example, we can look to Menachem Begin, who's talking to the National Defense College in, I think, 1982. And eventually, he himself has to admit that, quote, we must be honest with ourselves, we decided to attack Nasser. 
ultimately that admission doesn't matter in the aftermath of what happened. They can just do what they want. And then later it's okay because there's no action you can take on it at that point. And that's what we're seeing. I feel like on a daily basis now. They understand that it's not necessarily the truth that wins out in the end. It's whoever announces what's happening first becomes the story. And they understand that they have the direct line to American Western audiences. Whereas there's how many years of propaganda that's tried to instill an innate fear and distrust of Arab news outlets. You can't trust those, you know, those dirty Arabs, right? You can't trust those red commies. And that's how they're willing to allow, although I don't believe they even allow them at this point, Al Jazeera to report from inside Gaza because that's easy for them to dismiss it as propaganda because it has a scary name, Al Jazeera. Just because of the name. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be completely neglected, even though they're top tier news outlet in comparison to any other news outlet that you're going to hear on Western media. Kind of spiraling away from the story here. Military historians commend the Israeli actions as among the best executed and coordinated plans in modern warfare. And I am not a big military historian guy, so take that for what it's worth. You don't listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history, brother? Oh, God, no. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just fucking with you. (laughs) The one branch of history that's well-funded. Right. It's all very complicated. It's really not. (laughs) I'd like to be blunt here. Though I'm arguing pan-Arabism and Israeli expansionists ratcheted up tensions in the region together, I am not that interested in making an argument over which pushed the envelope into the quote-unquote inevitability of war. I hope to revisit this and discuss it in more detail in a future episode on the New Historian's revision of Israeli history, but rather than get bogged down on the specifics of the war, including discussions of morality and a preemptive strike, I think the broad strokes of the war are enough to further the history as we've developed it here. So built on superb intelligence, Diane executed dictatorial control over all arms and actions of the military and civilian infrastructure. The IDF imposed an absolute blackout and jam of all public sources of communication and news while launching wave after wave of planes equipped with experimental French-Israeli-developed anti-runway penetration bombs, and these had never been used before. The bombs decimated almost every single military-grade runway throughout the entirety of Egypt. The Soviet-designed massive Egyptian air force sat utterly defenseless on the ground, fish in a barrel for the small but well-trained Israeli jets. Within the first 24 hours, Israel secured almost complete uncontested air superiority. Yeah, and just to make a quick note here, and I don't want to get bogged down in this either, despite Johnson not wanting to get bogged down in this, I think he still saw enough of the threat of Soviet interference or Soviet presence to actually dispatch the U.S. Sixth Fleet to the Mediterranean to kind of keep tabs on what's going on and be ready to intervene if American lives were threatened, which is something we see time and time again. I think the 82nd Airborne was also put on notice. And again, not to get bogged down into this point of talking about the U.S. and the Soviets in the back of all this, but just as a point that the U.S. specter as it relates to relations with Israel is still looming here. And I think we're getting to the point, we're going to make this point further down the line, that this is the point at which the U.S.-Israel relationship as we know it today really starts to develop. But again, just to highlight that that imperial specter is looming here. 
yeah, America is now interested in what's going on if they're not directly supporting its execution. Right. And just to put an even finer point on what you're saying there, the fact that the French are developing these Western systems of military action with Israel is well known to the United States and more or less approved. If they didn't approve of it, they would have had the influence to get the French to get out of there. The Kingdom of Jordan, kept at arm's length as an antiquated monarchy by the Pan-Arab movement, intercepted false Egyptian reports of military victory meant to undermine Israeli morale. Jordan intelligence took these propaganda reports and Israel's radio silence as a sign of Egypt's overwhelming superiority. Nasser attempted to reach King Hussein to prevent his entry, but failed. By the third day, the state of Israel pushed back Jordan controlled the entirety of the West Bank. On the fourth day, the IDF began pushing the Egyptian forces out of Gaza due west toward the Suez Canal. On the fifth day, the Syrians lost the Golan Heights. On the sixth day, Israel agreed to a ceasefire with the three major powers. Israel ended the war with complete military control over the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Sinai Peninsula. The Israeli military inflicted death tolls of 9,000 to 15,000 Egyptians, 1,000 to 2,500 Syrians, and 700 Jordanians. Further, 280,000 to 413,000 Palestinians became displaced, or further displaced, as it were, as Israel captured territory and burned down numerous Palestinian villages. This all came at the cost of 776 to 983 Israeli soldiers, and 20 civilians. Moshe Dayan, Levi Eshkol, and Yitzhak Rabin emerged heroes. Gamal Nasser and his state-based pan-Arab movement emerged, at best, a tarnished Icarus. The Third Arab-Israeli War came to be known among the Arab world as Al-Naqsa, meaning the setback or the defeat. As historian Helena Koban wrote, quote, All Fatah's earliest fears about the probable course of a regular army confrontation with Israel were realized to the profound shock of the whole of the Arab world. For Palestinians, it marked another chapter in the unfurling of the Nakba. The Fatah, as it disagreed with the lightning Arab war approach of pan-Arabism, stood vindicated, yet heartbroken at the hundreds of thousands of lives upended. In Egypt, Nasser tendered his resignation on June 9th in complete humiliation the day after the Egyptian plea for a ceasefire. In Jordan, the monarchy, having lost East Jerusalem and the West Bank, lost what little respect that still remained among the Palestinians. Even in Syria, which provided the Palestinian guerrillas a far freer hand than the other border states, the state in defeat lost much respect among the Palestinian population. Though Egyptians spilling into the streets in mass protest brought Nasser back to the presidency, pan-Arabism lost much of its popular legitimacy. If the Third Arab-Israeli War dealt a body blow to the hopes of pan-Arabism, its effects on Zionism can be measured as equal and opposite. On June 10, 1967, the size of Israel expanded near three times. 
Zionists, for the first time, held complete military control over the entire land of Palestine, as defined by Winston Churchill in his infamous White Paper of 1922. It's hard to overstate the sense of accomplishment and sheer shock this created within Israel. In the time leading up to June 67, some kibbutz dispensed cyanide capsules in anticipation of being overrun by Egyptian tanks and planes. By the end of the month, Israelis felt more assured than ever in their own security. I mean, this really must play into the psychology of the state at some level, no? I mean, extremely. Yeah. yeah that's my argument, anyway. There seems to be, as we're seeing now, a need to truly believe that you are always a potential victim. Yeah. Which puts the population in a state of almost constant mass psychosis. And I would argue that's a response to the fourth Arab-Israeli war. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's this notion of religious Zionism that I argued is starting to gain purchase, but it doesn't it doesn't fit quite yet because there's not mm. this concept of being the victim. Right now, they see themselves as ultimately heroic, that they've won their right to exist. And as I mentioned earlier, the propaganda around this war is ramped up during the war itself. Israel goes out there and they start claiming that they did this all on their own, that they were completely abandoned by the Western world and left to suffer in vile and defeat. Of course, we've shown time and time again that the Western world has thrown a lifeline to the existence of the Zionist project, even in this war, because they wouldn't have won it without those French arms, without that French support. And U.S. intelligence at some level. To say that this is them acting on their own is purely a propaganda historical point that's being produced by the state of Israel at this moment. Moshe Dayan, with no sympathy to Palestine, took over East Jerusalem and the West Bank under a system akin to martial law. With Prime Minister Eshkol's blessing, Diane had all the artificial walls within the city of Jerusalem torn down and allowed the free movement of citizens within the city. The border over the West Bank remained open, though under strict Israeli watch. Behind the scenes, the Labour government began meeting with the Jordanian crown to start a transition back to Jordanian control of the Palestinian lands. At first, the Labour Zionists considered the occupation to be a temporary measure of significant cost to the state of Israel. It wanted a negotiation return to the pre-1967 status quo with additional assurances of Israeli security. Soon, though, Labour Zionists found themselves in an awkward middling space, attempting to appease the most radical expansionist elements in Israeli society while simultaneously attempting to present themselves as the reasonable diplomats. So long as relative peace reigned, these contradictions remained unresolved. Eshkol and Diane might have believed the Third Arab-Israeli War cemented their legacies as war heroes and statesmen, but the war only dampened the spirits of resistance. It did not quelch them. And I mean, this is why you hear people saying today that there is no military solution to this current situation. And I mean, that's completely true unless you consider complete annihilation of the Palestinians as a viable military solution. War like this, as you said, is only going to temporarily halt resistance and then it's going to form along new lines in whatever material conditions result within the aftermath. 
so long as there's not freedom and sovereignty to an oppressed people, there's going to be resistance. We talked about Fatah in the PLO, like a Palestinian first movement and one maybe that's tied more to the Pan-Arab movement in the last episode as well. We see the Palestinian first movement kind of vindicated, as you said, whereas this Pan-Arab alignment doesn't really seem to work out for the Palestinians, given what occurs in 1967. The resistance is assessing the ideology, the tactics, and then they're not going to kind of undergo this insane attempt to reconstruct everything that was, that, you know, that failed in the past and just do it better this time. They're going to take those lessons and adapt. And like, whether you like it or not, they're going to adapt with new tactics based on new conditions. And this is all just to say that that is kind of the context that you have to understand the shape of the resistance today, given this history and the almost 60 years that have intervened since. And, you know, we haven't even touched on what's happened in in the meat of that time area that I'm talking about now. These movements are constantly responding to changing material conditions, like you said. And in this instance, the Fatah really takes advantage of this new situation to push their Palestinian first argument, not to jump ahead in the history. But there's a material basis that all of these things come from. Hamas doesn't develop overnight based on nothing. That's all the point is you can't look at these things in a vacuum. And I know we're probably preaching to the choir, but if somebody stumbles into our series out of interest, just in case. (laughs) Amen. The Arab border states pre-Naqsa limited the actions of the PLO and Fatah in order to exert their own sovereignty in keeping with the ideal of pan-Arabism. After the Naqsa, each became distracted, picking up the pieces of their shattered worldview. With this opening, both organizations set to work packing their path through this new wilderness. The Israeli military victory across Jerusalem in the West Bank against Jordan occurred so fast. The IDF overran the Jordanian intelligence service offices with all of the files still intact. The occupational forces even captured Azmi al-Sagari, a Jordanian officer in charge of intelligence. Sagari trained Israelis in the intelligence service bureaucracy in exchange for his safe release. As an aside, the IDF, believing Sagari an ally, sent him to the East Bank to gather intelligence on the guerrilla forces under the cover of his position as an allied Jordanian intelligence officer. Sagari, racked with guilt, instead turned himself over to the Fatah, alerted them to the information the IDF possessed, and became a high-level officer in their organization until his 1982 death in South Lebanon. Redemption. Although the Gaza Strip proved to be much more densely occupied and thus a better organizational headquarters, the territory no longer shared a border with an Arab state. Rather than trekking across the inhospitable Israeli-occupied desert, Yasser Arafat found it much easier to establish headquarters in the old quarter of Nablus, a city in the West Bank, with a long history of Palestinian nationalism. The idea forces in charge of the occupation, coined the Israeli Occupational Forces, or IOF, in derision, engaged in ruthless building invasions, carrying apart every Palestinian home suspected of harboring guerrilla sympathies. Were there tunnels under the houses? Only under the hospitals. 
The Fata hoped that by moving into villages, they might blend into local life, integrate themselves into the community, and agitate for local rebellion until the eruption of a popular armed revolution. Arafat may have believed the Israeli occupiers might operate with no more brutality than their Jordanian predecessors. Instead, the IOF imposed rigid and humiliating curfews on entire villages, without exception, preventing the economic and social valuability of Palestinian life. Any home, by the soldier's sole discretion, suspected of guerrilla sympathies, soon found itself under a bulldozer. When the IOF suspected the Fatah moved on to the caves and natural hideouts in the region, daily sweeps of the local topography and the systematic mapping of every single cave began. Between June and the end of 1967, the occupation locked over 1,000 Palestinians in Israeli jails without any right to a trial. And that's a liberal democracy for you, right? At this point, like settler colonial Zionism has already won. That won in 1948 and probably sometime before. But this is the expansionist police state being birthed. And it's only going to get more brutal. The Fatah attempted to continue their strategy of integration into 1968, but struggled to foment a popular embrace by Palestinians in Palestine because of their ironic status as somewhat outsiders and a widespread misunderstanding of the nature of Israeli occupation. As detailed in the previous episode, Fatah built their organization in the salons, student unions, and refugee camps of the Palestinian diaspora. Although displaced Palestinians existed within the West Bank and Gaza Strip, diaspora Palestinians came, to a degree, to accept their existence under Jordanian and Egyptian occupation. Israel's brief occupation of Palestinian lands ended after the Second Arab-Israeli War with a settlement between Jordan and Egypt. After this third Arab-Israeli war, the Palestinians in Palestine expected the same. In the West Bank, Palestinians even continued receiving aid from the Jordanian crowd well into 1968. Why would these Palestinians bother with armed resistance to a brutal Zionist occupation they assumed would end within the next year? Arafat moved from Nablus into the city of Ramallah, just six miles north of Jerusalem. Israeli security forces surrounded the villa on a cold fall evening, believing they had cornered the head of Fatah. According to Israeli journalist Ehud Yahari, quote, they found a warm bed and boiling tea, but Arafat was not there. After the capture of over 1,000 guerrillas and the death of 200 more, the Fatah retreated over the River Jordan, ending the first campaign for popular rebellion in defeat but not defeated. The fourth meeting of the Arab League Summit, the first after the war, convened on August 29, 1967, in Khartoum, Sudan. The three days of meetings and deliberations culminated in the Khartoum Resolution, published on September 1st. The document exploded into the Western world as, quote, the three no's. It's worth taking a minute to read the most notable passages of this short document. Quote, the Arab heads of state have agreed to unite their political efforts at the international and diplomatic level to eliminate the effects of the aggression and to ensure the withdrawal 
of the aggressive Israeli forces from the Arab lands which have been occupied since the aggression of June 5th. This will be done within the framework of the main principles by which the Arab states abide, namely, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with it, and insistence on the rights of the Palestinian people in their own country. My gut reaction to this, given how much work we've done on people's movements, is that, you know, just because you lose that war doesn't mean the pan-Arab movement is dead. And you've got a bunch of people that have been coalesced into a movement around these kind of principles. So to come out immediately with a statement that capitulates and renounces all of these ideas literally would just be ejecting all of your political principles that are the foundation of this movement immediately to do anything but this. And I know we're going to get into a conversation more on the reasons and the interpretations of it. At first blush, people should be trying to understand these political statements in terms of the movements that they're trying to represent and embody at that time, even in a critical moment like this. They still need to maintain a level of legitimacy. They can't completely negate everything that they've built their legitimacy around at the turn of a dime. Immediate reactions to the statement understood the resolution as a hardening of Arab intransience in spite of the massive 1967 defeat. William Kandel, an American academic writing from 1977, argued the position represented Egyptian and Jordanian capitulation to extremism emanating from the wealthy Arab states, which agreed to aid the bettered nations. Egyptian historian Abd al-Azim Rahman similarly concluded in 1983 the resolution cut off any and all other paths to reconciliation besides another war. In keeping with the popular articulation, Diane concluded the same in his 1976 memoir. The PLO and Syria agreed. The statement supported armed struggle as the only means to resolve the conflict. In short, a consensus across fields and political divides emerged. The document represented either an emboldened commitment to Palestinian liberation or a quixotic extremist recalcitrance. Historian Yoar Maital argued, in spite of this popular global perception, the Khartoum Resolution, in reality, represented a redefinition, real politic attempt to reorient Arab national priorities towards diplomacy while keeping the possibility of armed conflict open. And going beyond the document's face value, he examined the discussions, debates, and documents behind and surrounding the resolution all of which, at least, American and Israeli state actors also had access to through back channels. For the sake of his argument, he considered the position of Egypt first and foremost, but applied his conclusions to Jordan and, to a lesser extent, the PLO in Syria. The reasons for the common-sense misinterpretation of the document as a piece of extremism are threefold. The first. The document must be understood in comparison to ideological statements made prior to the Third Arab-Israeli War, and not considered in a vacuum. As we discussed in the previous episode, Pan-Arabism understood the state of Israel as an imperial Zionist abrasion, 
its very existence needed removal so as to create in it a place, a unified pan-Arab state across the entire Levant. In this thinking, there is no diplomatic compromise to be made other than the dismantling of the state through a lightning war. The Khartoum Resolution replaced this approach with one which demanded, quote, removing the traces of aggression. Maital understood this line through his reading to mean, quote, obtaining Israeli withdrawal from all the Arab lands conquered in June 1967. So the difference might be subtle, but even this slight shift is represented in the classified documents as an agonizing concession. Rather than believing the state of Israel needed to be wiped off the map, the document only wanted a return to the pre-67 status quo. Second, related to the first, journalists, politicians, and the general public didn't have a long memory of the specialized knowledge contextualized the document as we did above. Even without the classified documents, someone with a significant or even passing understanding of the region might notice this kind of difference. This point on its own, is a little unconvincing. But the third point provides some context why Arab states, Israel, and the United States chose not to declassify this contemporary debate at the League or to interpret the document with this long historical lens. I may disagree a little bit that that is an insignificant point just because we can observe what short-term media memory means today. Mm -hmm. And I think we are, it's something that we already talked about, you know, like if you don't have a good understanding of this and you get like, again, in like a modern day instance, a Fox news kind of analysis of the three nose is this Arab intransigence. And that's all you really understand. I mean, that kind of informs your worldview and how you would assess the situation and goes into any analysis you might have of the situation right now. I'm kind of blending this historical example in a contemporary context, but I think it still makes the point that this presentation matters. And rather than having some kind of state apparatus that can articulate this in a way that actually respects people, right? Like our media does not respect us at all. They think we're dumb motherfuckers. They think we're all so stupid that can't do the work. And again, that removes all agency from us as like working class people, like the ruling classes do not respect us at all. They think they can throw you like this dumb fodder and we can be better than that. But ultimately it does matter in some ways because unfortunately there are some people that are just going to take this kind of quick interpretation of it. And like, that's going to be their worldview. That's going to shape their understanding of the situation. The comparison to the modern day, I think is extremely important. And I think you're 100% right. The big difference between now and 1967 is these people don't have access to actual pictures and statements by Palestinians in the palm of their hand. Yeah. All they have are Israeli and American newspapers, Israeli and American historians, and Israeli and American politicians interpreting it for them. So these problems that you're pointing out that are still with us were in some ways even worse back then, not even to sugarcoat the concept of social media as being some sort of savior in this situation. But clearly there is a lens that can't even be removed at this period. They can't receive alternative media. They can't mm -hmm. get any pictures of what's going on in the Gaza Strip. All they have are reports from the military and public. Yeah. 
which is the only reason I state that that's a little less convincing at that time. No, absolutely. To me, it's like the fact that they're still trying to do this same stuff over and over again, just again, shows what little respect they have for us as like intelligent thinking human beings as working class people. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree. And they're even telling us not to believe the truth. Like what I can see with my own eyes. <laughs> like It's so insulting. And yeah. that's where some of the hope lies is that people are finding this and not believing it. In spite of what our politicians continue to say about the United States, people are not happy with the way the American government is responding to this genocide because they're seeing the genocide in real time being executed. The third, Arab signatories to the resolution and Israeli and American intelligence with access to the documents kept the classified documents outlining the changes and discussions surrounding the statement's craft secret because of the propaganda aims of each state. Egypt and the Arab signatories, still reeling from the massive blow to the legitimacies from the war, worried about angering their peoples by being perceived as accepting the dictates of the United States and Israel. The United States considered Nasser a dangerous conduit of Soviet influence in the region and wanted regime change at any cost. Israel, after years of Western propaganda which painted Nasser a raging anti-Semite and extremist, believed a compromise with the man might legitimize his influence in the region just when he appeared at his weakest. To this point, a growing consensus among the Israeli public toward revisionist Zionism made blaming the Khartoum Resolution a convenient political exercise to please both on the political divide. On September 22, 1967, an advertisement, a statement on the future of Israel, appeared in local papers Yodoth and Roth and Ma'ariv. It read, in part, quote, the land of Israel is now in the hands of the Jewish people. And just as we are not permitted to forego the state of Israel, so too are enjoined to sustain what we have received from it, the land of Israel. We are hereby committed faithfully to the wholeness of our land in regard to the Jewish people's past and to its future alike, and no government in Israel shall ever forego this wholeness. Over 57 Israeli public figures signed the statement. According to journalist Naomi Shaizaf, the signatories represented 57 of the most important and best known, then and now, of the country's writers, intellectuals, and political activists. The signatories came from the right and from labor alike. There is also an undeniable religious appeal to the sentiment, which deserves to be considered, but must be framed as a minority opinion at this moment. Religious Zionism understood the expansion to the lands of the West Bank as essential to a long-term reclamation of Judea. Most ancient Israelis lived on the West Bank of the Jordan River, while the Philistines lived on the Mediterranean coast. Therefore, the major contemporary ethno-Jewish cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa hold very little importance to religious Zionists. Cities such as Jerusalem, Hebron, Jericho, and, for Christians, Bethlehem, all existed under partial or complete Arab control. 
the occupation represented the first time the quote-unquote Holy Land fell under the state of Israel's command. At the same time, though we can see the seeds of it growing influence here, religious Zionism had yet to become the major political force as we know it today. We'll revisit and dive deeper into this history on a future episode. That very same September day, Chaim Hangabi and Shimon Sabar, representing the communist anti-Zionist Mazpen, authored and published an advertisement in a rival paper, Haaretz. Quote, Our right to defend ourselves against annihilation does not grant us the right to oppress others. Conquest brings in its wake foreign rule. Foreign rule brings in its wake resistance. Resistance brings in its wake oppression. Oppression brings in its wake terrorism and counterterrorism. The victims of terrorism are usually innocent people. Holding on to the territories will turn us into a nation of murderers and murder victims. Let us leave the occupied territories now. The short document didn't acknowledge the oppression already occurring to Palestinians and appeared, at first glance, to embody the more limited territorial aims of labor Zionism. Still, the Mazpen represented a principled anti-Zionist organization within Israel founded by Arab and Jewish communists in 1961. Their foundational document translated, Peace, Peace, When There Is No Peace, Israel and the Arabs, 1948-1961, through 1961, outlined their commitment to a Soviet-style federation of the greater Middle East with a de-imperialized Jewish cultural state. Before we get too sidetracked, there is maybe enough on this organization to warrant its own whole episode on what might have been. I bring up these pieces as a means to argue that with the victory of the Third Arab-Israeli War, the popularity of expansionist revisionism won increased public purchase. So much so that the communist response felt that they must couch their demands of resisting occupation in the language of labor Zionism to gain any traction. Thinking about this, even in the context of the Khartoum resolution, but just that there's this general mechanism of, for a very dumb and simple term, just moving the goalposts. At this point, we're no longer talking about the illegality maybe of the 48 division of the UN, we're talking about the conquest of 67. And suddenly that gets buried, right? And then we're talking about the next atrocity and the next advancement of Zionism, right? Where does it end? If the Zionists keep pushing, they can continue to move the goalposts forward in the direction that they desire. And that's the statement I sort of made at the beginning, that really it's Israel dictating the terms of the peace in this two years. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunities for dictating the terms of the peace in a way that may or may not have been more just and reliable. And there's organizations like this communist organization that even understands that they're in an extreme minority at this point and even need to use the language of those compromises. Because I even had to look into this organization because I just assumed that they were being called left wing while being some sort of labor organization. And they legitimately were a communist organization. Right. That this must have been a deliberate point on their end to 
try to reach the largest number of, in the common parlance, reasonable American Democrats as possible. And, and I just think we need to remind folks here that, again, because the goalposts have shifted to such an extent that the labor Zionists look reasonable at this point, they're not reasonable, at least as it relates to the Palestinians. It's really the only thing that matters at this point in time, but they're still not reasonable. They wanted to build an ethno state as well. They may not have wanted to advance and expand at the same rate as the revisionists, but I think we've already demonstrated, so this is just a reminder here, that fundamentally when it comes to Palestinian human rights, it's a distinction without too much of a difference here. So again, just to reemphasize the fact that we're even having this conversation shows what this movement is doing to a discussion around Palestinian rights and where they should live, where they have a right to exist and develop and flourish on a human level. They're at such a position of power at this point that they are dictating the terms of the peace, yet at the same time, they're beholden to this growing extremist element within Israel itself. They don't actually have any ideological grounding in what their aims are. They really have no excuse as to why they shouldn't be occupying these lands because it fits into their larger scheme of things. They just honestly, I don't think they expected to have such great victory after 67 that it it sort of fell into their laps and they weren't ready for it. Mm -hmm. The ruling labor Zionists needed an extreme, quote unquote, Khartoum resolution in order to appease both the more labor-oriented and the revisionist wings within their own coalition. An extreme resolution allowed the labor Zionists to argue that they preferred to make peace with Jordan and return the West Bank to Arab occupation if only Jordan would come to the table. We might return the Golan Heights to Syria if only Syria didn't dismiss diplomacy out of hand. If only Egypt could meet with Israel, Gaza could be free. The heads of state knew full well the tightrope that the pan-Arab states walked to maintain their popular legitimacy on the Palestinian cause, especially now after the war. But the hubris of the Zionists led them to grab hold of that rope and shake, rather than join them in the act and risk losing the growing influence of the revisionist Zionists. This understanding of the Khartoum resolution, that it represented a precarious move toward diplomacy by the Arab world rather than, quote, the three no's, provides a key to understanding the possibility and limits of UN Article 242. The first paragraph reads, quote, the first, affirms that the fulfillment of charter principles requires the establishment of a just and lasting peace in the Middle East, which should include the application of both the following principles. 1. Withdrawal of Israel armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict. 2. Termination of all claims or states of belligerency in respect for and acknowledgement of the sovereignty territorial integrity, and political independence of every state in the area and their right to live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries, free from threats or acts of force. End quote. Like all Security Council resolutions, 242 passed unanimously and gained immediate approval from Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and Lebanon over rejections from Syria and the PLO. 
the Arab states, in keeping with the limitations of Khartoum, requested a UN special representative to act as a mediator. The Arab states couldn't meet with an Israeli state representative because it would put them in violation of, quote, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiating with it, until securing, quote, the withdrawal of the aggressive Israeli forces from the Arab lands, which have been occupied since the aggression of June 5th. The loophole being, since the Arab diplomat couldn't speak to an Israeli diplomat, they could speak to a neutral diplomat who could in turn speak to the Israeli diplomat. It's all part and parcel of the tightrope walk the Pan-Arabists made in their defeat. It's a bit silly on the face of it. Yeah, sometimes diplomacy is a silly thing. But as noted, Israel would not play along. The Israeli delegation refused to speak to a UN representative until the Arab states agreed to recognize Israel as a sovereign state. The Arab states couldn't do that until they came to an agreement with the UN representative. The Arab states were attempting to meet in the middle, but Israel refused. The talks went nowhere, and Israel's labor Zionist governing politicians claimed that they tried their hardest to reach peace, thus appeasing the labor Zionists, while blaming Arab extremism for continuing to hold the occupied territories, thus appeasing the revisionists and the religious Zionists. State of Israel forgot the very real feeling of precarity and fear of May 1967, so fast in just six months after that war. The position of hubris on the part of the State of Israel got a shot in the arm by an eager Uncle Sam. Except for the Eichmann trial detailed in the previous episode, many diaspora Jews living in the West if they thought much about Israel at all, looked on the state as a refugee center. The state used this position to their advantage when crafting themselves as the collective Jew. Donations from diaspora Jewish to the state and adjacent nonprofits skyrocketed during the Eichmann trial, but very few of these same Jews considered Israel a viable home. Why would they want to move to a place where poor and desperate Jews sought shelter? The Third Arab-Israeli War presented as being one sheer military genius, reached the homes of millions by ways of newspaper headlines and the nightly televised broadcasts. Almost overnight, the image of the passive, persecuted Jewish refugee became shattered. Israel appeared to be a real place capable of defending itself. Since the early movements of Zionism we've detailed in our previous installments, Capital investment and immigration from America and Great Britain remained elusive. But the state of Israel leveraged their newfound prestige for a grab at that golden ring. After the war, the state produced new immigration incentives. Three years tax-free, no mandatory military service for any ethno-Jew willing to emigrate. As mentioned, the only sizable Jewish population left at this point lived in America and Great Britain. This is just out of my own curiosity, but is that inclusive of the Soviet Union as well? The Soviet Jews would have been included by the state of Israel, but the Soviet Union was a bit too wise to the project that was going on and discouraged Soviets from leaving the nation. The sizable populations left in America and Britain are the ones that Israel would consider as 
accessible or reachable at this point in time when we say that. It's more that that's the population that has money and education. They're not quite as interested in receiving more poor and refugee level Jews. Mm -hmm. They still are getting those trickling in, but that's not really what they're going for anymore. Got you. Prior to 1967, capital considered investments in Israel to be of too great a risk. Why invest in infrastructure that might be crushed under the treads of Egyptian tanks? After 67, though, these concerns vanished. Leveraging their abnormally high education rate, even compared to Europe, and state-subsidized low cost of living, Israel altered the tax code to further incentivize American and European aeronautics and tech firms to open in Tel Aviv. Yeah, and talking about capital investments, I think it's a real consideration at this point in time that we may see the reverse starting. The military-industrial complex may prop this up as long as it can, but if Israel proves to be a quote-unquote like unstable investment, capital will flee. Capital doesn't care. Mm-hmm. I don't want to totally separate the military-industrial complex from capital, but if capital flees, the military will eventually follow because it's all part of the imperial apparatus. If you look at the situation right now from the perspective of investment, you have to understand that the terms of engagement that were set by 67 have been changed by Al-Aqsa Flood. And you could probably argue, I think, as we touched on our, in our conversation with Sina, that the beginning of that change started in 06, when Hezbollah actually demonstrated that they could defeat the IOF. Is this another kind of crack in the uh, facade or crack in the bulwark, maybe? I mean, because I think when I say facade, that that implies that there's like this veneer with nothing of substance. I think 67 showed that there was something of substance there. But now the terms have changed a little bit. And Israel is not as secure in its ability to sustain investment with no risk. They cannot be just this uninterrupted undisturbed center in the Middle East any longer. It's been shown that those walls can be traversed no matter how high you build them. Right. But there's never going to be security so long as it's built on the backs of massive oppression. I hope you're right that some of these larger influences of capitalism are going to be the undoing of the superstructure of the Israeli economy. Of course, that's not really going to be the motivating factor. It's going to be the movements that have caused that instability, but that's going to be a chain reaction down the line. The only thing that I would hesitate on is Israel has become the location in the world for the development and experimentation of the military industrial complex. No matter how unstable that investment might become, It might also be necessary on some level to have that experiment continue to exist in that location. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And just to talk about Cena again, given that we're coming off that conversation with him, he had a really good conversation with Alex Avina. Avina brought a Latin American perspective to this. We talk all the time about how the IDF trains Pittsburgh police forces, right? It's way more sinister than that. As sinister as that is, I mean, you're talking, as you said, about literally crowd suppression and surveillance technologies being tested on the laboratory 
of Palestinians and how this works. And as we see the imperial system decline, climate crisis take off, proven technologies are going to be a boon for the ruling class. It is a dour, but I still think realistic and important point that you make that they're not going to let go of this one easily. That said, I do think there is some veracity to this idea that it is less stable. And that is because of the movements of the people in that region. And I think the movements of people outside of the region as well, like BDS. You know, I think these things do have, as you said, a chain reaction, a cumulative effect. So even if it doesn't seem like it right now, keep fighting on these fronts. Unfortunately, we're fighting on the capitalist terms at this point, but we still need to do that. We need to fight on every single front we have. Yes. And it just sort of gets to that utterly devastating response. I believe it was the Empire Files was speaking to a representative of the Navy, asking them about the concerns of climate change. And they stated that the Navy needed to be even better prepared and equipped because of increased sea levels. Yeah, more ships for bigger oceans. So there is a possibility that the utter rot that's embodied in the military industrial complex will just ride this out and continue to invest in Israel. We're just hoping for a better world than that. Hopefully it's just like a failing startup that SoftBank sinks about $50 billion into before they only ultimately decide to give up on it. but. They'll, they'll try to ride it out for a while. As long as their money will allow them. Large international changes worked in tandem to begin the transformation of Israel's foundational commitment to ethno-Jewish egalitarianism. Greater immigration and tourism from America and Europe led to and resulted from greater investments from abroad, which led to and resulted from increased deregulation and the loosening of state controls over the economy. The commitment to economic egalitarianism represented a founding myth. Please see our previous episodes before accusing us of spreading Israeli propaganda. But one which up through this point remained, compared to contemporary Western and European America, true for ethnic Jews, as in, at the expense of the Palestinians. In addition, the increased sense of economic security and state permanence opened Israeli operations to hire foreign Arab labor to do menial work. Most of these Arab laborers commuted from the West Bank, Gaza Strip, or refugee sites, and, since they were non-Israeli citizens, lacked access to state labor protections. Capital flowed into the state of Israel initiated and pushed further along by British and American Jewish immigration, which in an ongoing cycle increased the flow of capital to an Israeli state which looked more and more American and British with each passing round of deregulation. We will be revisiting this thread along with the rise of religious Zionism in a future episode, yet it's important to recognize why this process began ramping in this period even before the monumental shift ratcheted by the Fourth Arab-Israeli War. Just because we're talking about U.S. capital and the conversation on the military-industrial complex, I think it also bears repeating here that if the Suez Crisis, Second Arab-Israeli War, put the U.S. on notice that Israel was a bona fide military force in the region, this really cemented that vision. 
that conception of what Israel could be as it related to, again, being their kind of imperial accomplice. The French and the British are fading fast at this point. Oh, yeah. In terms of imperial control. I mean, the U.S. has long since at this point assumed the French's fight in Vietnam. So we're seeing at this point in time, given what Israel demonstrated in terms of military capability, this coupled with this increased appetite for capital investment and flow, they're cementing themselves in this relationship with the U.S. And it's not quite there yet, but on the military technology the investment, and the intelligence level, that U.S.-Israel relationship really starts to crystallize here, as I understand it, into that shape that we recognize today. That definition is only going to become more and more clear as we go through the 70s. While Israel grew belligerent and fat with the investment of Western capital, Palestinians came to realize the permanence of Israeli occupation. At first, Palestinians on Palestinian land imagine the occupation may last weeks. Those weeks grew into months. Those months into years. Those years into decades. Those decades to today. Before this realization gained widespread acceptance, the Fatah and PLO never gave up their war for Palestinian liberation, even as their allies faltered. The Battle of Karama on March 21st, 1968, Though a footnote in Israel's history, if mentioned at all, became a pivotal event in the emergence of the Fatah and the PLO as the popular representations of the Palestinian people's political identity. The border town of Karama is situated just a few miles east of the Jordan River, due west from the Jordanian capital of Amman. The PLO and Fatah established a base of operations there back before the Third Arab-Israeli War, continued using the location to stage attacks against IDF operations on the Jordanian side of the border. At times, the Jordanian military provided cover for the several hundred villagers and over 900 guerrilla fighters, which set up shop in a compound within the town. This is where Arafat ended up after his harrowing escape from the IOF detection in Ramallah. The Jordanian crown escalated tensions with a February 1968 mortar attack on the Beit Sha'an Valley located in Israel between the West Bank and the Sea of Galilee to provide cover for Fatah and PLO operations. The IDF and Air Force retaliated by striking Jordanian military and mortar bases. The Israeli battery also touched an American-financed canal which resulted in American-brokered peace intervention. The Crown conceded that the Jordanian military would root out Palestinian guerrillas committing cross-border attacks in exchange for an immediate ceasefire. The Jordanian defense forces rolled up to the village of Karama in late February with orders to evict the Fatah in PLO camp, but the guerrillas pleaded for more time to prepare their withdrawal. Israeli forces, growing impatient but nervous about breaking an American-brokered peace, responded by performing raids on surrounding villages suspected of harboring liberation fighters. Israeli restraints snapped when a Fatah operation mine set in Be'er Ora in southern Israel erupted on March 18th under a school bus, ending the lives of two adults 
and injuring 10 children. On that night, against American protest, the Israeli cabinet approved the IDF request to attack Karama outright. Jordan intelligence monitored the sizable buildup of troops, armored divisions, and helicopter support on the border with great unease. The Crown worried the IDF intended on using a raid on Karama as cover for a full-scale invasion of the nearby Jordanian capital. In anticipation of this possibility, the Jordanian military mobilized their infantry to take positions around the border crossing and surrounding Karama. The IDF perceived this mobilization as a threat and further fortified their own numbers. In the days leading up to the attack, Israeli planes dropped leaflets throughout the village, the compound, and on Jordanian military positions, promising that Israel harbored no intentions of armed conflict with civilians or the crown soldiers. Knowing recent history of Israel's violence, the leaflets eased nobody's mind. Imagine. The exact details remain disputed, but suffice to say, the PLO and Fatah anticipated the attack. In spite of advice from Jordanian officers to flee from the superior-equipped Israeli military, over 200 guerrillas, including Arafat, Abu Jihad, and Abu Ayyad, decided to stand their ground and prepared to fight to their own death. Inclement weather prevented Israeli air domination, while strategic Jordanian military positioning and artillery fire prevented rapid Israeli ground mobilization. Israeli airstrikes and artillery bombarded the village, demolishing 175 structures that reduced the camp to cinders. The IDF, unable to gain great positioning, retreated from Jordan less than 15 hours after the first shot. Israel declared the raid a tactical victory. They did destroy the encampment. Arafat and the other leadership of Fatah, very much alive, declared the repulsion of the overwhelming Israeli force and successful retreat of the PLO and Fatah an even greater victory. The perseverance of the outnumbered and outgunned PLO and Fatah freedom fighters over Israeli military aggressors became the first triumphant international piece of Palestinian liberation propaganda. King Hussein addressed the nation on television, declaring his forces stopped in Israeli invasion of Amman but he also professed a profound thanks to the heroic actions of PLO's fighters and the Fatah. Although, with the benefit of hindsight, it does appear the IDF never intended to invade Amman. And, although Jordanians provided the lion's share of the firepower and strategic genius, the mythical heroic image of the small band of brave Palestinian guerrillas met a critical human need for agency among a demoralized and downtrodden Palestinian people. Within 48 hours, thousands volunteered to apply to Fatah. Syria and Iraq prepared training programs for use by Fatah. Kuwait raised money by levying a 5% tax on a sizable Palestinian workforce. And the PLO promised lifetime support of the families of any fallen Fatah guerrillas. I think we just need to put that statement in bold letters because think about what a rallying cry, what a galvanization that this would provide to the Palestinian people. Again, as mythologized and 
embellished as it may be, but so what in this context? You know, so what for the resistance? And think about this phenomenon when you think about the rise of Hezbollah and Hamas, just as examples. If you're a displaced farmer in southern Lebanon after 06, who do you turn to? Who is providing, who is showing that they can actually fight back, fight back and address the root of your oppression and displacement, right? If you're an orphan Gazan, who are you going to turn to? The people that show that they can fight back, the people that can demonstrate capability. So you can understand why this becomes a galvanizing, heroic call to action in this moment in history and how we can draw parallels to other moments in a more contemporary context as well. And to just grab onto a point that you made there, to dismiss any aspect of this as quote unquote myth, I think it's important to realize that myths, stories, these kinds of notions of history are what end up driving human action. There is no such thing as the capital H history of what really happened. Everything is filtered through a lens. And it's important to remember that this was a monumental achievement of people that believed this invasion was imminent. So nothing that they were stating at this point was known or constructed to be false, although it was a constructed history based on what they believed to be the facts on that ground and what they knew this people needed in order to pick themselves back up. Propaganda is a four-letter word in a lot of ways. We can't seed that ground. Propaganda is important. It's important to know and to create stories for your own existence and to encourage hope in the creation of a future. Somebody asked me about propaganda once and like as it related to what I do, and I just kind of laughed and said, of course I do propaganda. I mean, I want to tell actual history here, but I have a purpose to it. All history on some level is propaganda. Right. Because you're artificially creating a narrative. You're stringing together connections that you can never fully prove were 100% true. I mean, I'm confident in everything that we put out there in terms of, you know, the facts of history. But again, we have an agenda and a message that we want to send. That's part of everything that we do. And again, we're talking about just us, but to your broader point, that's what everyone does. This little (laughs) podcast with no Patreon to the much more influential State Department of pick your state. And this even ties back to the earlier point you were making. The religious Zionists were very quick to accept control of education. If you can construct the narrative in the way that children view the nation, then you potentially control the future of that nation. There's a reason why that's such a big point on the right in terms of these culture wars against wokeism in classrooms. It's all a smokescreen, but the truth that they're actually trying to get at is that education and history are actually incredibly essential to the way that the nation understands itself in the propagation of this settler colonial experiment that we're continuing to unfold on this side of the ocean. We on the left should just embrace this notion that history can be weaponized, whatever you want to say, and to use, I guess, a less loaded term, can be used for good. You know, I mean, I think we would say you look at Western propaganda around what the the PRC does or the Soviet Union did and their education system and like is like this. Oh, you know, they're trying to control the minds of children. What the fuck do you think the U.S. and Israel do? That's how states operate. (laughs) That's how this works. Just to reiterate, though, 
we are not making up any information here. No, for sure. We're creating narratives. According to historian Sabash Singh, quote, the Battle of Karama was the political and military turning point in the Palestinian resistance movement, as well as Palestinian-Israeli conflict, especially for the Fatah. It restored the pride and self-respect of the Palestinians and the whole Arab world and pointed the way ahead after the failure of the June War. W. Andrew Terrell argued, quote, Political myths dramatize the past in such a way as to make future destiny apparent. As an activist historian, I know it's important to understand both the events as they occurred, as much as anyone might ever know this, but also the myths which get to the larger truth propping up the narrative of resistance. In this regard, the mythology surrounding the Battle of Karama pointed to the greater truth of human dignity and anti-imperial struggle against an overwhelming foe. Quote, Before destruction comes pride, and before stumbling comes a haughty spirit. It is better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoils with the haughty. Be a communist. That's not Karl Marx there. No, and I said that as a joke, but I really do take that as like an embodiment of the spirit of communism. Like, again, fight with the oppressed. Don't be the bully. Like, stand up to the bully. It's really simple shit. And before you go out there, start talking about Jesus. Remember, it's in the old book, too. Well, that's where Jesus got it. Everything good in the sequel <laughs> is even better in the prequel. Yeah, except for like the genocidal God and all that. I mean, they, they definitely softened God a little bit in the in the sequel. I don't know. They're trying to reach a, a new audience, I think, a bit. <laughs> Are you one of those guys that likes the Star Wars sequels compared to the original, too? Not at all. <laughs> I mean, we have to have some nuance to these conversations. We can't be categorical. No, no, that's true. In conclusion, after months of near-continual lobbying, the State of Israel hit a breakthrough. In November 1968, the Johnson administration made the first unilateral agreement to sell Israel 50 F-4 Phantom Jets. While America sold small arms to Israel as far back as 1952, this deal represented a sea change. In the past, America sold Israel older technology in small quantities at similar rates as other nations in the Middle East, including Egypt. The F-4 Phantoms represented a technology the United States' own Air Force hadn't yet been fully equipped with. To this point, the agreement stipulated Israel needed to wait until September 1969 to receive their first shipment. Uncle Sam still needed to protect freedom and democracy in Vietnam before helping Israel protect freedom and democracy in Palestine. Never again would Israel need to lobby for America's support. To the hubris went the spoils of mass destruction. That really gets to your point that this is the cementing of the bond has never truly been broken between the United States and Israel. Because they demonstrated, again, in very crass terms, that from a military and capital perspective, that Israel was a good investment. Open for business, and business is going to boom. While we haven't talked about it very much, because it's only tangentially related to Israel, 
they are doing massive resource extraction from Saudi Arabia and Iran and are passing it through Israel. The writing on the wall in terms of the alignment within the Cold War was kind of here at this point. The U.S. and some of the Western powers at least did make some overtures to working with Egypt, right, like with different food shipments and agreements. But now the U.S. could bet on the winning horse. They knew which of those two nations was willing to accept deregulation in markets and which one was going to protect their national and state sovereignty and the dignity of their own people. This is a pivotal moment to understand because here we see the resurgence, the crystallization of all of the forces, both internal to Israel and externally, that we're dealing with today. You have to understand where these movements come from to combat them effectively on some level. Um, But again, you don't have to understand this history to go out and stand with Palestinians in solidarity at a basic, fundamental, human level to stand against genocide, to stand against apartheid, to stand against ethnic cleansing and oppression. You can do all that and learn on the fly. Trust me, you don't need to be fully informed to go out and speak on this issue right now in this moment. So with that said, I know it's like, it's crazy. We're over 40 days into this human tragedy at this point in time. And I know that momentum can kind of stall. But one thing that I think is encouraging is that momentum seems to be growing. There's actions everywhere. So the point I'm making here is we are making a difference at some level. I know there's still Palestinians dying and children dying en masse. But I think we are seeing, I mean, certainly the political quote unquote Overton window shifting at this point in time. And that is because we are all getting out in the streets. The streets, the people are with Palestine and you have to keep up that momentum for as long as it takes. It might be a little bit trite to state, but even though Al-Aqsa flood has been happening for about 44 days, you have to remember that. For the Palestinian people, this has been going on for at least 74 years. This is a relatively small portion of a long, horrible tragedy that is just continuing to unfold. And so we have to look for the hope where we can find it. Things are not going to go back to the way that they were. Something is going to have to be vastly different if or when Israel is held to account for the actions they took by a world that no longer has patience for their behavior. At least that's my vision of what's happening here. Absolutely. And people are on the side of the oppressed. I don't want to dismiss the tragedy of what's going on in Palestine, but you also have to recognize that these people are still fighting. They haven't given up hope yet. They're still fighting. We can still fight too. So with all that said, please go out and get organized. There's actions happening all over wherever country you're part of. I mean, I would say the U.S., but I know we've got some listeners in other parts of the world. But this is a truly global mass movement. So if you haven't yet, go out and get linked up one way or the other. It all makes a difference. I was listening to one Palestinian speak, and they were saying that, you know, even just the little signs of solidarity, flying the Palestinian flag, wearing the kofia, makes a difference on like a human level to the Palestinians that can see that the world is with them. Obviously, it doesn't change the fact right now that the bombs are falling, but this movement is happening. So go out and get involved. 
I am kind of proud of us on a lighter note that we finished about 12 pages of history that you wrote up in just about an hour and a half. I had, when I first saw this write up, I thought, <laughs> oh man, even with you, just you and me, this could go for a two and a half, two hour kind of deal. But uh, I think we kept it sharp. As always, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Adios, paisanos. I want to see what you're made of. <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha